It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. We were discouraged with all the negativity in the world and decided to focus on finding some good out there. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast with me, Teresa. And me, Amy. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Amy, what were your highs and lows from last week? Well, I think highs would definitely be... We've done a lot of paddle boarding. Mm -hmm. We went to Lost Lake with Ellie and a friend. That was super fun. I think my lows, I've just been eaten alive (laughs) between mosquitoes and, oh, and I've got a couple spider bites. So that's, I don't know if Hmm. it's the humidity. I mean, not the spider, but the mosquitoes. Yeah, the humidity has been ridiculous out here. We talked a lot about plastics and the harm they're doing to the environment on our, you know, throughout our podcast. In episode 18, we talked about Enes Rajapan, a 72-year-old paraplegic man who's gained attention in India for his efforts to clean up waterways of discarded plastic. In episode 19, we talked about four ocean bracelets, which, you know, I love, that each bracelet purchased funds removal of plastics from the ocean. We've talked about explorer and ocean activist. You talked about Emily Penn in episode 20 including her fight against the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. In episode 21, we covered a bunch of ways that waste plastics being used to make new and useful products, including clothing and roads. And in episodes, <laughs> it sounds like we're obsessed with this. Yeah. In episode 68, we talked about blocker machines that would compress plastic into large bricks for construction. That's so cool. Yeah. I also saw these bags that are made from billboards, and they're like canvas, so they're waterproof. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that for the story, but... I have two stories related to updates on things we've touched on in earlier episodes that are giving some hope that we can clean up our planet and get this plastic eco-disaster under control. As Amy discussed in episode 20, plastic pollution is a worldwide problem. And it's not just plastic on the land, it's plastic in our waterways. This causes chemicals to be leached into the environment. Animals eat it and can become poisoned. Fish eat it and they can get into the food chain. And in some places, the plastic's pollution is so dense it crowds out plants and animals making virtual dead zones. One of these environmental disasters is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This is an area in the Pacific Ocean where currents take plastic that's adrift and it compiles into a virtual island of garbage. It's awful. And gross looking, too. It's estimated that there are 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic in this area. This patch of floating plastic garbage is twice the size of Texas. Their efforts today, it's huge. huge. And twice the size of that. And it's garbage. There are efforts to clean up this mess. An organization called the Ocean Cleanup has hit the milestone of removing 100,000 kilograms of plastic from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. That's awesome. Super awesome. Very cool. So since I'm metrically challenged like (laughs) most Americans, I'll put this in perspective. That's about 238,100 pounds of garbage removed from the ocean. Wow. That's the equivalent weight of two and a half Boeing 737 passenger planes. And while it's huge. Literally. Yes. And while this garbage includes lots of little plastic like straws, plastic bottles, food containers, it also includes larger items like DVD cases, huge fishing nets, coolers, 
packing materials, and plastic pewter components. This is all stuff that's been dumped into the environment that's been carried to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This first 100,000 kilograms was cleaned up by using their automated garbage collection system, which they named Jenny, which oh. I found interesting. They're getting ready to launch their System 3 soon, which they expect can clean up to 10 times the amount of garbage as Jenny. Wow. Still, there's a long way to go as it would take 1,000 more hauls of 100,000 kilograms to clean up the entire garbage patch at the current rate. So let's hope System 3 yeah. works as planned as they'll get a significantly, they can speed up the process. The other issue is they still have to deal with the plastic once it's removed from the ocean. Do with it, yeah. So some of it still will end up in landfills, but hopefully some of it will be reused and continued to develop more methods of recycling reused plastic. Yeah. Speaking of which, it goes back to something I mentioned back in episode 21, Patagonia, the outdoor clothing manufacturer, which I saw a purse also. I'm trying to, I think it was by the sack. That was oh, also yeah. made out of all recycled nylon fibers. That's really Very cool, yeah. which I want to look into too. Patagonia, the outdoor clothing manufacturer, has been working on a way to utilize plastic waste into clothing. Patagonia has released its Net Plus line that makes jackets, shorts, and hats out of discarded fishing nets. Oh. So the fishing industry all over the world has contributed significantly to the plastic waste in the oceans, largely through discarded nets. Yeah. Nets may become tangled or damaged during fishing, and often the response is to just cut the net free. And if you're like me, you think of the fishing nets where you scoop up a fish at a time, right, kind of right. like my dad uses, but the nets we're talking about are industrial-sized nets that are largely made of plastic. They can be several hundred square feet to nets that are miles long. Wow. So these are huge. Yeah. massive. I feel like we saw some nets the other day when we were running that big like knotted mess on the side yeah. that I pointed out. I'm not sure it was a net, but I think so. Much of the Pacific garbage patch is made up of these nets, and they're commonly found floating in waters all over the world. Patagonia has teamed up with a company that collects these nets and breaks them down to usable-based products that can be turned into comfortable and lightweight fabrics, which I think is oh, so brilliant. Awesome. Very cool. The nets are collected in South Africa and processed in Chile, so this is yeah. even cool, too. All the job opportunities. Exactly. <laughs> Patagonia uses the recycled plastics to make the clothing. The fabric in the Net Plus line of clothes is 100% made from recycled fishing nets, removing thousands of pounds of these dangerous nets from the ocean and making bright and colorful clothing. Coastal communities in South Africa are benefiting, as well as not only recycling their nets rather than cutting them free, but also earning money by collecting nets out of the ocean and Very selling cool. them. Win-win. Yeah, to be processed and used in clothing. I just love hearing about how people and companies are really using technology and creativity to help solve some of these huge environmental issues. So there will be more of those in our very cool in our posts ahead. We're talking about Jenna Bush Hager and Barbara Pierce Bush. August 7th is National Sisters Day. So oh, I, yeah. coming up. Yeah, I know. I thought it'd be fun to talk about the Bush twins. Last fall, you so kindly <laughs> let me dig through your extensive library. It's not so expensive anymore. I've been good at minimalizing. Yeah, or minimizing. Well, I found Sisters First, Stories from Our Wild and Wonderful Life. It's an awesome read about them growing up in a political dynasty, sweet stories about their childhood, and yes, some wild ones for sure. I loved it. 
Barbara and Jenna were born November 25th, 1981. Their parents, former President George W. Bush and former First Lady Laura Bush, were over the moon. They were 31. The presidency wasn't even on their minds. They had almost given up on having children of their own when Laura became pregnant with the twins. Matter of fact, they were in the process of completing adoption papers. They included this darling picture of themselves taken in their backyard in Midland, Texas. And as a side note, later Laura gives this picture. She frames it for each of the girls right before they go to college. And she says to them, doesn't this just look like two people who desperately want to be parents? Oh, my gosh. I just love it. And the photograph is so cute, and they're just beaming. I just love that. Well, and that she kept it for them. She kept it for them. Yeah, it was very sweet. Uh, Barbara was born first, so she was named for George's mom, and Jenna was named for Laura's mom. Uh, That's so sweet. I know. It's really. Jenna and Barbara are fraternal twins, so they don't look alike, Mm -hmm. and they often get compared. Jenna, the loud and wild one, (laughs) and Barbara, the quiet, more reserved one. From the very beginning, these girls were a pair from matching clothes, sharing the same bedroom, to each other's constant playmate, confidant, cheerleader. Practically from the day they were born, they were accidentally famous. At a campaign rally for their grandfather, former President George H.W. Bush in 1984, The twins were barely three, and they were seated in grown-up chairs. Barbara sat in a chair while Jenna scooted across the stage and at one point lifting up her dress. I guess the cameras (laughs) went wild. Uh, So began their lives in the limelight. I love that their grandmother, Barbara, wrote in her memoir, George's twins are wild. At one time, they stuffed the toilet with paper, and I was up to my elbows, pulling it out. I couldn't help wonder if any other first lady elects spent their morning unstuffing the toilet. <laughs> oh, it's just so fun. But uh, Jenna and Barbara call each other Sissy, which is cute. And their, nickna- their parents' nicknames for them are Benny and Bojish. So when the girls were babies, a couple asked George and Laura the names of their baby boys. And so they just went with it and said, oh, Benjamin and Beauregard. Oh, that's funny. And then it stuck and morphed into this Benny and Bojish. Uh, speaking of names, poor Barbara really struggled being named for her grandmother. One time when she was around eight, ordering pizza for the family, she told the person on the phone her name was Barbara Bush. And they abruptly <laughs> hung up on her. Um, they thought she was pranking them. And it was and in, she was eight. And she so, was eight. Yeah. I know. And it wasn't just it wasn't just pizza orders. I guess she had trouble with her Girl Scout, even her scholastic oh my gosh. orders. But each time Barbara felt ashamed, <laughs> like she was clearly in trouble, yet it wasn't her fault. No. I totally get it. But life in Midland was sweet. Uh, Laura's parents, known as Grammy and Paul, lived around the corner. So cute. When the girls were babies, Paul would come by and ask Laura, are the girls up? <laughs> kind of knowing, regardless that they were asleep, they're up now. Summer nights, as little girls, their mom would take them in their PJs to their parents' house where Grammy would be waiting with a plaid blanket spread out on the grass for the four of them to lie side by side looking up at the clear sky. That's so sweet. Yeah, and she was a naturalist. So simple, yeah. You know, so I think, yeah, I thought it was really sweet. And then on snowy winter nights, their dad, George W., would take them for a walk all bundled up, filling up bowls with snow. 
And then later, they um, when they got home, they'd pour syrup on it. So it's like some sort of pioneer-inspired snack. It's pretty cute. The more you talk about him, I, yeah, it just yeah. makes me very endearing. They they definitely had a lot of adventures together, especially with Jenna's expansive imagination. The girls would pretend to dig up for buried treasure, or they play they were two barefoot orphans lost in a patch of woods behind their house. <laughs> Opposite. Yeah. Totally funny. Barbara and Jenna are huge cat lovers. So much so, they created cat names for their family. Dad was Tommy Tuff, (laughs) Mama's Stripes, Jenna's Marmalade, and Barbara's Rosebud. Their parents patiently played along. Their little cat world symbolized a (laughs) tiny pack of four, a family that always wanted to be together. That's cute. It kind of reminded me of my sister, Kathy, and I. When I was maybe in first grade, I got a stuffed dog. I don't know why, but I call it Sergeant Drooper. <laughs> and I had a little song. I'm, I'm not going to sing it, but we create. my sister and I created these voices for the dog and everything, but we called my mom Moo and my dad Do. They probably loved that. They did. They might, we call, I called my sister Sissy Poo, and she called me Hoonie. Now, I don't know where she came up with that, but anyways, I, I have to say she still calls me Hoonie. Sometimes she pulls Aww. that out around public. But the sweet thing is, I, you know, my sister was in high school at the time, and she was just so good to me, you know, and kind of play mm-hmm. along. So, little but anyways, sis, yeah. yeah, little sis. But back to Barbara and Jenna. They talk about growing up, they were nomadic at times. I mean, packing up every few years. In 1987, they left Midland for D.C. for 18 months, then to Dallas, um, off to Austin, and eventually back to D.C. The only place that was constant was their grandparents' summer home in Kennebunkport, Maine, or fondly known as K-Port. Okay, I would prefer the K-Port. K-Port's easy. <laughs> yeah, that's a long name. Barbara and Jenna and their 13 cousins oh would spend their summers together, spending time playing outside, hide-and-seek, playing in the water. Their grandmother, Barbara, or known as Ganny, hung a little placard on the bedroom door that read, Children outside in fresh air in the daytime and summer reading before bed at night. So Ooh, I good love, one. Good I know. One. So you can kind of understand where that love of reading mm-hmm. came from. They slept in an attic space lined with twin beds known as the girls' dormitory. <laughs> it sounds like so much fun. At, it sounds like camp. It does stop. sound like camp. Yeah. I just love it. Maybe not such a fun time at 13-year-olds. They were kind of an angst mm-hmm. time for them. get that. Uh, on their weekends, their mothers, uh, their mom would uh, try to wake them, and their dad would say, no, let sleeping vipers lie. <laughs> I guess they weren't morning people. Uh, in seventh grade, Jenna was egged on to flip off a ph- photographer for the class photo. I think I remember this. I, I don't I don't. I mean, remember. I wasn't there, it, there but I remember it in the... Hear, hearing about it. Yeah. I guess everyone was going to raise their middle finger in unison. Jenna was the only one. Fortunately, they airbrushed her <laughs> finger off for the photo. So they kind of had some fun. Yeah. Then in eighth grade, they went to Pearl Jam concert, which they were totally allowed to go to. But they decided when they got that they were going to do that crowd surfing. So they were going to dive into the audience and let these total random, yeah. stra- gross strangers, yeah. you know, hand them around. Um, and that haunted Barbara for years. Every time she had a body ache, her mom would say, <laughs> oh, do you think that's from the time you went to Pearl Jam? Oh, that's funny. In high school, they lived pretty normal lives, even as governor's children. They shared a beat-up Jeep, you know. A sweet moment Jenna wrote about her dad. Um, Jenna's prom date, her on-and-again, off-again boyfriend, at the last minute invited another girl to the prom. So her dad convinced her to put the dress on anyway, and they danced around the governor's mansion's living room. So that's so sweet. 
The girls went off to college, Barbara to Yale University, like her dad, and Jenna to the University of Texas in Austin. So totally different experiences, yet similar. And probably matched their personalities. Matched their personality, yeah. yeah. And their father became 43rd president of the United States. So they both were assigned Secret Service Mm -hmm. detail. That made, you know, trying to fit in and be normal college student a bit challenging at times. One scary time was the morning of September 11th, 2001. Mm -hmm. Barbara got a call from one of her details saying, just to let you know, if you're not listening to the radio, the second Twin Tower has been hit in New York City, and it's unclear what's happening, so we need to be on you more today. A bit later in the morning, an agent came to Barbara's dorm and said, you've got to come with me. We've got to get out of here right now. Talk about scary. Totally. And she knew, I mean, something far worse had happened. They took her to a hotel on the outskirts of New Haven. Initially, she couldn't talk to her family because her mom was rushed to a secure location in the White House and her dad was circling above D.C. and Air Force One. Mm. Finally, the Secret Service got Jenna on the phone and then later she got to speak to her mom and Then on the weekend, Barbara and Jenna and her parents, um, they joined them at Camp David. And Barbara noted they were briefly, you know, their usual foursome again. I just love reading about what a tight-knit family family they they were. Yeah. The girls talk about how hard the decision to go to war against Iraq was on their dad. Regardless of how you feel about the war in Iraq and President Bush's decision, it was difficult for Barbara and Jenna, too, on a much personal level. There's this letter their dad wrote to the twins. Dear Barbara and Jenna, yesterday I made the hardest decision as president to make. I ordered young Americans into combat. It was an emotional moment for me because I fully understood the risks of war. More than once, I have hugged and wept with the loved ones of soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. I know my decision is unpopular on college campuses. I hurt for you because of the pressure on you. There will be marches, loud professors denouncing me and our actions and bad posters. I am confident in my decision. I'm also confident there is an almighty God who will provide comfort, strength, and love. And I pray daily. I pray for those I love. And the three I love the most are you and mom. Love, dad. So sweet. Whole new respect for for him. But a decision and no one would want to be. No one would want to be in that place. But it's so true because Barbara had a professor at Yale who gave her a lower grade because the professor didn't like that that we were at war with Iraq. So uh, like a young college student could sway her father's decision, Mm -hmm. I mean, or the state of the nation. So yeah. And I think she needed to fight that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So Barbara wrote that her dad never got over the war and what later inspired his paintings of the faces of wounded warriors. So at 65, he started painting. Teresa, you chatted about his book out of many One Portraits of American Immigrants in episode 35. So he found an art teacher and purchased oil paints. He started with landscapes, moved to Barbara's cat, Eleanor, <laughs> to, to, even to Zambia. He created portraits of people, Great Britain's Tony Blair to the Dalai Lama. Then he started painting veterans. Uh, he studied each person and got to know their family, deployment date, their physical and mental wounds. I love reading that these wounded warriors didn't just come and sit. They came to the ranch. They played golf, bicycled with George W. They became his people, not just on the canvas, but beyond. Hmm. It shows you the depth. The of depth his, of him. Yeah, character. After college in 2004, Barbara and Jenna joined their dad on his campaign trail. Barbara and Jenna could see his da- the exhaustion on their dad's face. With one more rally to go, the twins acted more like their juvenile selves to give them an energy boost. (laughs) 
Jenna stuck her tongue out to the press, thinking the windows of the limo were tinted. They weren't. Uh, <laughs> and their dad laughed, shaking his head. Don't do that, Jenna. Someone will take a picture, and we'll be splashed all over the television screen. Of course, he was right. <laughs> a few hours later, Jenna... Experience. Experience, exactly. She was running on the treadmill in the gym at the hotel they were staying, and her face lit up the local news. So <laughs> Those girls sure did have fun. Oh. Innocent fun. Innocent, innocent fun. Like, yeah. I mean, they just were play, yeah. playful. They also had incredible travel opportunities. Jenna joined her mom in Africa to support women's health and HIV and AIDS prevention programs. It's so cool. Both Jenna and Barbara worked for UNICEF for a period of time. Jenna traveled around Latin America meeting mothers and their children and wrote their stories for UNICEF. It's so confusing with so many Barbaras. I know. When you say that. So yeah. You mean the twins. The twins. Okay. And well, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jenna talked about how it struck her that they were so eager to share their lives and they were grateful just to have someone to listen. Barbara worked for UNICEF in Uganda and her experience impacted her. She wrote that just spending less than 30 minutes in a clinic, you know, where a mom brought her fragile girl in dressed like an angel in a lavender dress their mother's choice to love her daughter to make her beautiful in hopes that her life will be spared by medication to treat AIDS and you know so hoping they pick her because pick her, she's of so, the, because of the dress and Barbara Bush their grandmother as former first lady uh, visited in 1989 grandma's house i think that's in the DC area it's a care center for infants and small children with AIDS this was during a period of time where you know there's little information and many people were terrified of the disease these experiences eventually led to Barbara and Jenna launching their nonprofit. In 2008, Jenna attended AIDS 2031 conference. Mm. One of the speakers, Peter Pyatt, who discovered Ebola in the 1970s, suggested a Teach for America model for global health. And Jenna phoned Barbara immediately because it was a similar concept Barbara had talked about. The idea for Teach for America, the concept is to recruit creative, committed 20-somethings Place them in settings where they are immersed in challenges of healthcare delivery, becoming innovators and problem solvers. It's so awesome that Jenna encouraged Barbara to start this uh-huh. nonprofit. That was the beginning of Global Health Corps, GHC. It's an organization that mobilizes a global community of young leaders to build a movement for health equity, which is just so awesome. Switching gears here just a bit. <laughs> Got to talk about the rest of the family. Jenna met her husband, Henry uh, Hager, while helping with her dad's campaign for re-election in 2004. They started to date for a while, and I love that he first asked Barbara if it was okay if he um, asked Jenna to marry him. Then, of course, he asked George and Laura. That's sweet. I so know. he asked Grandma first, and then no, the No, he asked Barbara, her sister, the twin. Oh, oh okay. The twin. See I'm what sorry. I mean? Yeah, I'm getting I'm the Barbara so confused. I'm sorry. It's okay. confusing. And they married in 2008, and then in 2009, Jenna began doing segments for the Today Show while teaching at (laughs) Seeds in Baltimore. Seeds is a college prep boarding school. It's tuition-free, offering access and opportunity to less fortunate students who otherwise might not get college prep, which is really, really Mm -hmm. cool. Jenna Jenna started with segments on education and women's stories, and then she became a regular. And one of her special moments was interviewing her grandfather, George H.W., or Gampy, um, on his 88th birthday. at Did you see that episode? I've seen that episode, yeah. Um, Shocking. No, yeah, and it was at Walker's Point in Maine. I guess that was his favorite spot. As you know, I love watching Jenna on the Today Show. Uh, Jenna and Henry have three children, daughter uh, Mila, nine years old, uh, 
and Poppy, daughter Poppy, seven, and son Hal, three years old. Now, Barbara met her husband, Craig Coyne, he's an actor, mm. on a blind date, and they married in 2018. <laughs> oh, I know. and they just funny. I know. They just welcomed their daughter, Cora, this past September 27th. She was six weeks early. Mm. So Barbara was on vacation in Maine when Cora came early, and she had nothing. So Jenna flew to Maine and shopped for everything she could possibly need, which is really sweet. She spent some time in NICU and is now totally fine and healthy. I just love this quote Jenna said. This is pre-Hal, but she said, Every day with her girls, Mila and Poppy, I'm silently thankful to my parents for teaching me how to be a parent without the pressure of having to create perfect kids. And also to their parents who taught them that lesson first, which mm-hmm. is so awesome. I love the names Mila and Poppy, too. I know. And I do. That's a really deep quote. Yeah. That's- I, I so enjoyed reading their sweet, funny family stories. It really made me reflect on my own family growing up, and particularly my relationship with my sister, who I am so thankful to have in my life. I mean, she's been my rock, the one I go to for advice or just to talk. We've had some great memories in our own adventures, for sure. But I think I'm most grateful is for you know being together, especially through the tough times, losing my parents um, mm-hmm. 11 years ago for my dad, nine and a half for my mom, and then losing our brother Jim in November 2020. It just makes you realize how important family is. And fragile. And yeah, yeah, the relationships are. And then I also kind of wonder what kind of memories, you know, my kids will cherish and what their relationships will be mm-hmm. like as as adults. And I just pray they are close. I think that's every parent's hope. A lot of pressure. So, a lot yeah, of parents hope, you know. I also admire the Bush family legacy of advocating for health equity, beginning with their grandmother, Barbara, and continued with the twins, Jenna and Barbara. I especially love their family values, spending time together and all those summers mm-hmm. in Maine, and their emphasis on reading and writing letters. Besides the one from George W. to the twins that I read, um, there are others in the book from George W.'s parents to Barbara and Jenna. So I just love that. And, mm-hmm. you know, writing letters is such a dying yeah. art. We need to bring that back. Finally, I get why Barbara and Jenna are sisters first. It really seems that it began with the entire Bush family, the core value, family first. I love that. Good story. At the end of your life, you'll never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or closing one more deal. You'll regret time not spent with a husband, a friend, a child, or a parent. Barbara Bush, former First Lady. I totally love reading about the Bush twins. They're tight bond, fun stories. I love hearing about them. And they're growing up in the political, you know, dynasty. Very cool. However, I especially admire their love of education and reading. They recently came out with a new children's book, The Superpower Sisterhood. Oh. It's a darling book about a little girl who desperately wants a sister. Then one day, two sets of neighbors move in with, of course, two sets of sisters, <laughs> and, and her world change. It's a cute story about how they all became sisters and realized they could tackle anything together. They write in their shared diary, With these powers, we will do good deeds, nurture nature, uplift others, and above all else, support our sisterhood. Sissy Power Unite. <laughs> I mean, it's so flipping cute. I think it's a club we could join. Absolutely. Anyway, I, I just love the message of yeah. sisterhood, superpower. And it doesn't necessarily have to be blood-related. Sister mm-hmm. can be no. friends. And, and as a group, you can make an impact. It really has a powerful message for young girls, you know. Absolutely. Um, I love that. I Although I would love to do something like that with my boys. They're a yeah. little too old. Yeah, but exactly. They would not be into that. But I just like I yeah. could try. You could try. <laughs> 
Speaking of uh, powerful messages, you gave me an article about a young activist who inspired a children's book. Back in 2018, young Tiber fought. He's just 10 years old, drove seven hours with his grandmothers to join his idol civil rights activist, Representative John Lewis, who we talked about mm-hmm. back in episode That must be three. why I gave you the article, yeah. because I was trying to remember. remember yeah. yeah. Uh, to do a march in uh, Selma, Alabama. I guess the two stayed in touch and uh, got together several times afterwards. Tiber was asked to read one of John Lewis's favorite poem, Invictus, by William Ernest Henley at his funeral in 2020. Mm. After learning about this boy's relationship with John Lewis, author Andrea Davis Pickney was inspired to write a book about it entitled Because of You, John Lewis, The Story of a Remarkable Friendship. Andrea said that Tiber's story reminded her that there are kids on the streets today making a change. I love that both these books are about the power of friendship and how together we can collectively make a difference. It makes me hopeful. Mm -hmm. And what an awesome message for our children. And they're really our future. Good good vines. I love those. For we are given power not to advance our own purposes, nor to make a great show in the world, nor a name. There is but one just use of power, and it is to serve people. Jenna Bush Hager. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.